Hey everybody and welcome to yet another episode of the Lowdown Society podcast. Today I'm coming to you from beautiful Miami, Florida, where I just got off the Monsters of Rock cruise. Good news there is uh, when I was on the Monsters of Rock cruise, I managed to get together with a few rock and roll bass players and have my first rock and roll roundtable uh, bass podcast. So that will be up in a few weeks. In the meantime, we have today's podcast. Our guest is Dmitry Gorodetsky, who has, to me, one of the coolest gigs in pop right now with Mr. Charlie Puth, who is a genius-level singer-songwriter, multi-instrumentalist, who in just the last year has gone from playing theaters to arenas in a very short period of time. I had a few audio issues with the first 90 seconds to two minutes of the podcast, so we joined the conversation when Dmitry has just told us that he's from Minsk, Belarus, and he moved to America with his family around age 10. And right here, I believe Dmitry's just talking about playing music around the house and being influenced by his dad, who was a musician as well. Enjoy. They would file off the end of the drumstick and I'd get the baby drumstick, the, the chopped half size. And I started messing around on pillows, playing pretend drums, and then going to my dad's rehearsals. Early memory, one of the first memories was going to my dad's. Uh, also, he's a musician. So I started messing around with instruments then, and it was like practicing some guitar, noodling around. My dad made me one out of just uh, plywood, two by four, something. Um, so yeah, I was messing with music, but it was just like one of the hobbies. Yeah. It, it wasn't really my life focus yet. Um, and I thought everybody was from America. Um, I listened to tons of Beatles, tons of Rolling Stones. I thought they were all American bands. I don't know why they spoke English. Yeah. To me, that was, English was not from England, apparently. Yeah. Um, and then my, and then the other half of the music in the house was jazz. Dad was playing like, Ella Fitzgerald, Count Basie, Duke Ellington, Stan Kenton, Big Band, Glenn Miller, Big Band. So, to me, it was all American music. Like, it was pretty much, I mean, we had our own little Russian local favorite, what was popular then. But other than that, everything was from, I didn't even know, like, the British invasion was a thing. Because I loved the Stones, thought they were speaking English from America, and same as the Beatles. So... The switch from guitar to bass. Yeah. Or, as I heard a lunch with you, the switch from guitar to upright bass. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it I kind of went in the quote-unquote wrong order. I definitely was playing guitar pretty intensely. It really started with moving to America. Mm-hmm. So once I got here, I started like making a conscious effort to practice. My dad kind of said, like, look, you're not really going to get very far, talented or not. It doesn't matter. You're not going to get very far if you don't practice. Like, you got to, you know, as a 10-year-old boy, it's time for you to understand that if you're not disciplined about something, you're really not going to reach your potential. So I'd pick up the guitar, and I was kind of like practice, and then I would drop it, then pick it up again. i feel a little guilty. I'd go back to it, whatever. It was back and forth until it finally stuck. Um, I would say probably around 12 years old. And then I was like a guitarist in my mind that wanted to be Jimi Hendrix. That was the, my, my, my superhero. Um, and then the switch to bass happened only because I think the reason why half of us are playing bass, 
keep starting bands in high school, middle school, and no one wants to play bass and no one knows how to. We're all guitar players. It's like we got a screamer for a singer. We got our drum buddy that just likes to hit things, so he's the drummer. Um, and then a couple of us guitar players are like, yeah, we love Chili Peppers. We love Rage Against the Machine or, or Hendrix or Zeppelin. And we're all playing guitar. Like, well, who the hell is going to play bass? Like, do you know what this is going to sound like if we don't have a bass player? And I was the guy that started saying early on, okay, I'm going to keep practicing guitar. And I might even be showing you the guitar parts, showing the other guy. But then I'll go to the bass to, to, fill up, to round out the band. And so that's kind of the earliest switches to, to bass. I mean, in like middle school, I was playing Battle of the Bands and Final Dance and the big dances. They would still, I guess it was the old school era where we would have live bands that dances still. And I would play bass because no one else would. I would sing because no one else would, even though my singing voice is awful. It's just terrible. I should have cleared out the room. Everyone should have left. So you were like sort of a result of one of my favorite sayings ever. Necessity is a motherfucker. Absolutely. <laughs> yep. It's the mother of invention. Yeah. Yep. You, um, you had to sing. You needed to play bass. That's yeah. it. Yeah, I yeah. was like in a Zeppelin and Hendrix. That's all we wear. We wore bell bottoms thinking we were still in the 60s. Zeppelin and Hendrix cover band. Wind Cries Mary and, and Stairway. And because no one would sing or play bass. I was like, well, I guess I'll do that. I'm still into guitar. Um, and then, then it was like, then I got into jazz. And I started studying jazz and going to jazz jams and getting jazz records and finding out who the local jazz guys were in the area where I was living, which was like an hour west of Boston mm -hmm. in central Massachusetts. That's why I'm still rocking the Patriots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, growing up in Mass in, in America, it was like I found a little local jazz scene. I got a local jazz teacher. Went kind of from blues into jazz. And still playing some bass, but really like not giving up on guitar at all. Yeah. Got a hollow body Washburn guitar thinking I'm West Montgomery. And I was like practicing my octaves, playing with my thumb, and, and really just obsessing about it. Just diving in. Um, started getting vinyl records and then I'd start starting we were starting bands again like now it's in high school jazz bands wind ensembles and and jazz uh, small combo and again nobody to play bass it's like I want to be the guitar player uh, in big band in school in high school big band I was always playing that's the one thing I could get good grades in was in in jazz band and wind ensemble and and, and bands and I was playing guitar and I even made it to some district and all state level as far as like as a guitar player in, in jazz big band. But when we'd start our own groups, there was no bass. And the high school had an upright bass. And I was like, I can't play electric. And that's not the right sound for this anyways. Like upright is the obvious choice. So I really at that point started seriously to steal the bass on the weekends from the school, probably without telling them. I was cool with the music director, so I knew the punishment wouldn't be super crazy, even if they busted me. Boom. Yep. Yeah. Started stealing the upright, taking it home for the weekends. Um, getting got my little tendonitis right away from overworking my hands. They weren't ready. Blisters, was bleeding from fingers, trying to build up my calluses, and um, 
Yeah, all the while studying Blue Note Records, uh, got everything I could on Prestige, you know, the classic record labels. And then with my buddies, we finally started a band um, and we got a steady gig at a restaurant. So that became an outlet to like just learn how to play jazz standards. And we were amateurs, we sucked, sounded terrible. Um, but that was, that was the switch to upright and I got super deep into that. I mean, that carried me for 10, 15 years of playing the big bass into New York and uh, even in different genres, I would still try to play upright. I would kind of claim like that's what sort of sets me apart and makes me a little different than the thousands of amazing bass players here in LA and New York and all over the world and the country um, is that not like I'm so unique at this but there's less of us doing this where we use the big bass to play any style you know what I mean so it's a funk tune I'm totally down to play it on upright yeah. it's got a different kind of hump and a different sound and I can make the facility of the line work if it's a Whitney Houston tune I'm cool to play that which is supposed to be definitely a pop record played on electric. And so that just, it took me down that road. Very cool, man. I, uh, one of the next few guests who I'm tracking in Nashville in a few weeks, Brian Allen's his name, he's a Nashville session cat. He plays for Jonathan Davis, the lead singer for, from Korn and his solo band. And that entire gig is on heavy metal festivals and he oh, plays no upright. I auditioned against him. Oh, really? Here in LA. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. What happened was, I think they had Miles Mosley on bass mm -hmm. um, on Jonathan Davis's, uh, Jonathan Davis's project um, before that. And Miles is an amazing bass player here from LA. He's part of that uh, West Coast Get Down movement with Kamasi mm -hmm. Washington and Terrace Martin and um, all those guys. And he plays bow and he has a, a set of pedals and he gets crazy sounds all upright. Mm -hmm. And so Miles put his stamp so heavy on that gig that when he moved on to film scoring and doing his own thing, his own record, he's amazing, great guy. And a friend of mine, and, and he's doing some great things now, they were like, we still want the upright. That became the sound of the project. Yeah. So they held auditions. And uh, I told him my little bass, my upright down there. And yeah, it's like a rock and roll. I mean, it's a metal gig. Yeah. Playing at loud volumes, just trying to keep that thing from feeding back and stomping on like distortion pedals or whatever you got on your pedal board. I brought a pedal board in my upright and Miles plays with a bow and makes all this stuff. So it's like set the bar really high. But yeah, I did that audition. Yeah, it and, seems uh, like that would fit you too, man. I love that shit. Yeah. I love that shit. And obviously didn't get the geek, but um, I wasn't mad about it at all. It was well, a cool process. Well, even though I don't want to skip too much in the chronological order of sure. the cities you lived in and all that, but yeah. that is a great segue. Like. I didn't get the gig. Well, here's the thing. If you got that gig, which isn't necessarily maybe a full-time thing, maybe you wouldn't have gotten the gig you're on or you wouldn't have been. Yeah, there might have been a little overlap. There. So uh, without jumping the gun, we can backtrack later. But sure. So you are with Charlie Puth, who uh, my listeners know I'm a huge pop nerd, pop fan. So even before I knew who you were, I'm like, well, when I get to L.A., I want to talk to Puth's bass player because that's... Oh, wow. seems to be one of the most uh, inspiring and musically valid pop acts out there next to, you know, Bruno and and uh, if you can count hip-hop into pop, Kendrick Lamar and stuff like sure. that, it seems to me like Charlie's gig would be up there 
And uh, so you mentioned uh, to me at lunch that you were here for six months before you got that gig. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, uh, I had just finished my uh, New York chapter of my life. Mm -hmm. I was there for about 10 years. Put my upright bass in, the, uh, in my truck and drove cross country and moved, uh, you know, my few belongings and my bases with me to LA and was just on the struggle bus, as we call it. Mm -hmm. um, starting out brand new in a new city. Uh, the one MD that I had known here had actually moved away exactly when I moved here. Mm -hmm. So I didn't have a ton of allies. He was still helping me out and, um, and guiding me a lot, and that's Rob Lewis. Mm -hmm. um, gave me a lot of advice and a lot of mentorship. Mm -hmm. as as well as my first arena opportunity arena gig and and a lot of uh, and recordings and, and cool sessions mostly all on upright by the way all right Ron, Rob right. picked up on that early on uh, with us in New York and was like yeah I'm, I'm gonna call you for some Christina Aguilera and Nas stuff that we got to track on upright all right and I was like okay cool I'm down and um, a bunch of other projects anyways he had moved away from L.A., so my one buddy and my one ally who had been working in L.A. was like, I know an M.D. in L.A., I know somebody. He went back to New York. We switched places, so he's in New York now doing his thing. We're based out of New York. He's everywhere. And so, yeah, when I moved here, it's pretty much random, you know, an impulsive decision just on the spot. Like, okay, this New York thing has been awesome. It's time to go. There's opportunities in L.A., I could feel that it's the right place. And uh, yeah, I was struggling. I was sleeping on the floor. I was lucky to have an apartment, sharing an apartment with uh, a person I'd never met before. I literally just drove in and just- That's the LA off. way though. Yeah. It is. Yeah, you just show up. Yeah. Somebody said, oh, um, my friend's looking for a roommate. The, the room is such and such. And you know, you can just see it once you get there. Mm -hmm. And I just drove 4,000 miles, you know, with that in mind. And it worked out. Um, but yeah, I was definitely broke and um, sleeping on the floor. It was carpeted floor, so it made it a little softer. But I was I was struggling, you know, with because I had no gigs and uh, just barely making enough to get by to eat a little food and 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 try to not be late on rent. But um, I was fortunate enough. A friend of mine hooked me up with a church gig, so uh, I had a little bit of that coming in. But basically, about six months after being here and struggling, um, I got a call to come do this thing at the Forum. And I was like, the Forum? I, think, I was living in Inglewood at the time. I'm like, I think that's right next door. At least it's not a long commute. And it's a TV show. And I'm like, okay, I've done a couple of those before in New York, but this seems huge. I think this is an, an arena. I think it's the old Lakers home. And this TV show is the Teen Choice Awards um, was going to be like a lot of viewers. And I got nervous and, uh, and I was hyped at the same time. And uh, that, that arena call, that one TV show was really like my uh, audition. There was no audition per se, but the, when the MD called me, I understood very well that if I didn't do well at this one thing, these rehearsals and this one song, one performance of We Don't Talk Anymore. It was like one, you know, a, a Charlie a Charlie hit at the time. Still a hit. 
um, that I wouldn't uh, be able to move on to the quote-unquote next round. So um, after that, that went well. And there was a few more shows, random promo, and then there was a tour, and then there was another tour, and then there was a, a recording with Charlie on a few of his hit records. And yeah, that uh, it turned around quickly for me in L.A., I was very lucky and feel very fortunate, very blessed. Um, that stuff, you know, it didn't have to go that way. I do feel like a lot of it has to do with my mindset, though, and also my preparation in New York, because I got my ass handed to me in New yeah. York. You know, I got my ass kicked. So it was, um, I think, all those years putting in leading up to the move in those six months in L.A., um, that prepared me. I think without New York, that couldn't have happened. I actually could not have just shown up to LA and found work like that. So you mentioned in those first six months when you were really struggling before mm -hmm. Charlie, your MD buddy threw you a few. You said your first arena show. Mm -hmm. and so you mentioned in there too at lunch, new kids on the block, mm -hmm. and you just said some sessions for Christina. Was this mm -hmm. prior to Puth during the yeah. during the lean months, so to speak? The, not even. That was still in New York. Oh, gotcha. That's gotcha. all New York. That was Madison Square Garden. Um, in New York as a New York local. So what I was doing in New York a lot of times is besides playing local gigs, I was um, a for hire session guy. Mm -hmm. So if a band was passing through, if an artist, I should say, was passing through town and they had a show anywhere from the garden to a local gig or even a record release party, um, I got to work with them. So there was a lot of one-offs, you could say, yeah. with a long list of artists. Um, kind of like, that's why I say it's a session guy thing. I worked with Fantasia that way on her um, uh, single release, Eric Benet, you know, a bunch, of, a bunch of artists, TLC. So it was like the New York local guy that was getting not necessarily tours like that, but I would work with the artists as they would pass through town if they needed a bass player. Cool. So all that stuff was in New York, yeah. But that probably gave you a little bit of, uh, sort of, uh, as we say in Sweden, a little bit of ice in your stomach for when you got the, the pooth call in Inglewood when you were sleeping on the floor. Yeah. To do that arena gig. Well, I've played for bigger artists than this kid before. It's not life or death. And yeah, there was a certain amount of confidence that I already had. Yeah. I had definitely played thousands of gigs on both electric and upright and in everything from playing on the street. I played on the street and in the subways for years in New York. Yeah. Um, upright, electric, whatever. I mean, just from slumming it at the very bottom to Madison Square Garden. That was definitely under my belt already mm -hmm. before I had moved to L.A. So there was a certain confidence. I wasn't cocky about it. I didn't want to be, I don't want to make it sound like it was more than what it was because it, I kept being humbled by the experiences all the way through, like, you know, as big as a gig might have been, the next month's rent was still in New York. It's like, 
you're still battling, man. Yeah. You're still fighting for it. So it wasn't like, oh man, I'm like this amazing guy or like this world touring world class thing. It wasn't like that. But I, at the same time, I was slightly seasoned. I wasn't a total spring chicken to playing, you know, different situations, different styles of music, picking stuff up on the fly. I had worked with Rita Ora by then and, and, and 50 Cent and Nas, like you mentioned, like a bunch of different genres too. Yeah. Jazz, hip hop, R&B, soul, funk. Um, had toured with blues bands for a couple of years. This band called Roomful of Blues mm -hmm. and another guitarist named Duke Robillard who's like a connoisseur of old school blues, East Coast based guys. So in a way I was like kind of a, a soldier kind of coming out ready for whatever was going to happen. But I was a little bit experienced. I was a little battle tested already. I just needed the opportunity. That's why I came to LA, you know? And, and right away I started getting confirmations that I'm in the right place, right time too. Mm -hmm. That was the cool thing. Um, a friend of mine set me up with a church gig. I always, in New York, I always played gospel music. I played always in church every Sunday that I was home. Mm -hmm. Sometimes up to four or five services a day. Wow. Um, as many as I could, I could uh, muster on no sleep uh, from playing the night before. But um, a friend of mine, dear friend of mine, DW, he set me up with a church gig the day I got here. Actually, the day before. So the one thing I had in L.A. was like, Okay, I got this little foundation to build on playing in church in Pasadena um, for the Burrells Family Church at uh, AGM. So it was like, okay, I got something. I'm going to be okay, even though I'm sleeping on the floor and skipping meals and my truck is getting repoed or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and then other confirmations started telling me, things came together that told me, okay, this, this L.A. move is... is you know, the right thing at the right time. I'm in the right place. I didn't leave New York in vain. Um, I started getting calls again from my friend Dwayne to do uh, revolt sessions for Diddy's uh, TV channel. He has that, um, it's like old school, like MTV style TV where it's live bands with artists, pretty well-known artists are on their way up uh, in front of a live audience. And it's, it's revolt TV is what it's called. And it's in Hollywood and Highland, right in the shopping mall. Mm -hmm. They have um, the studio session there, sessions. And we, we went and just do session after session, sometimes five, six artists a day with no rehearsal. Just learn the music on your own, show up, and that stuff would go out over the you know, airwaves. So that was like a dream coming true right away. Because I, I moved to L.A. To, to do TV, session work, pop tours travel, record, studio, all that stuff. And besides that, you know, there was a few few other things that started coming together and started finding work. I'm like, you know what? I'm in the right place. This is not all in vain. That's before the Charlie call. Mm -hmm. It all, it, you know, I was still scraping by. I was gonna, I was at one point, you probably might enjoy this uh, story. This music man bass, I know the the listeners can't see, but they can, they can, uh, I'll try to describe it's it. It's all natural color, yeah, black pickguard, yeah. maple neck. Yeah, it's a vintage flame. style. Yeah. Yep, flame, natural wood, like, I bought this in New York. This was my main base, main five string for a long time. And uh, I'm glad I, I brought it with me and never got rid of it. 
this was the bass I played on the very first Charlie gig on that uh, at the Forum at the Teen Choice Awards. But I was so broke leading up to that gig and up to that call. I was calling my sister, who's who lives in New York still. Um, she's one of my best friends, and I was like, "Okay, I think I got to pawn this bass. I got to sell it. Like I have no money. I need food. I need to pay." rent and I know I can sell this thing for maybe a thousand bucks or something like that. It's an American base. It's decent. It's quite good quality. So I was like, I got to pawn it because uh, I don't, I don't know how I'm going to get by. I don't really have work this week or whatever. Things are still really slow. And she said, ah, I know, I know you've done the struggle thing for years in New York. Try to hang on. Try not to get rid of the base if you can. Just wait a little bit longer. You know, skip a meal if you have to, but like hang in there and don't get rid of the bass because you're going to need that bass to play gigs. She didn't really know what was going to happen, but she knew that, like I knew, that eventually I was going to find some kind of work. So I was like, man, I've really got to pawn this thing, but okay, I'm going to hold on like one more week. And then another week, and then I got that call and, and I'm like, and I called her and I was like, yo, thank God I didn't pawn the bass because I got to use this thing for rehearsals in this TV show and it's with a great artist and he's really dope, great team, great band and great musical director. And um, I was like, thank God. So we did the gig, played the, I have a picture from the gig, doing it on this bass. And then as you know, it takes sometimes a month for the check to come in. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Like these check, you're not, you don't get off the stage playing a TV show, whether it's the Grammys or whatever, or anything else, and handed up an envelope with cash. That would be so old school. That would be like the 1950s. Aretha Franklin. Yeah, exactly. That's Give it. Give the briefcase or the brief go on Yeah, stage. yeah, like the Chuck Berry. Yeah. Like that, that, that briefcase has got to be full of cash on the side of the stage before you hear the first note. So not that world. So I played the gig. It was great. I think everything went well. I got called back, so I think. And... Um, I called my sister. I'm like, yo, I'm still out of money. I'm still, I think I still am going to pawn this base. Like I just played a show, like a huge TV show with an awesome artist. I kind of just got my, my break in LA. And yet I think I got to get rid of this base. And she was like, no, that's crazy. It doesn't even make sense. You were just on TV with it, you know? And I came really close to getting rid of it and selling it, putting it on Craigslist or whatever. But, um, I ended up, hanging on and the check came through and I'm glad to say I still have the bass and I love it. Dude, I'm so glad you told that story. I think anyone that's taken a chance uh, have that story. I sure have been there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but you have to have known at that point in your, in your gut that all these names that you mentioned, you know, like from New York, those are heavy, heavy names. And even though those are only one-offs, you know you're not going to roll into L.A. and not eventually, with a resume like that and hip-hop and pop in New York, not put food on your own table. You, yeah. have, you had to have known from your past life in New York that there's no way that this... I won't say misery, because when you're on a mission to do something good, yeah, it's you, not don't even care that about, miserable. Yeah. you don't care about the struggle that no, much. No, it's not even that miserable. Either. But you, you had to have known it was temporary. That's, and it's not that depressing if it's temporary, right? No, because you see the light at the end of the tunnel right yeah, away. It's yeah. not that depressing at all. That's a great way to put it. Um, yeah, I knew somehow deep down in my gut I was going to be all right. And um, 
I just believed it. I moved here in 2016, and 2016 was mostly, it was rough, especially mm -hmm. the first half of it. I moved in February. But in my mind, I mean, I always believed that I would, I would find work and I would get a call and then things would come together. But also, my mantra was, okay, my 2016 might be rough, but I can tell you about my 2017 and my 2018. Meaning I knew that if, you, if I survived in the city a year or long enough, that I was going to have the, the next year I knew it was going to be great. And the following year, 2018, 2019, my mantra was already like, I kept repeating that to myself. Okay, 2016 could be rough, but I know I'm going to be good next year. I know. I've just got to battle it out. I've yeah. just got to hit every jam session, meet every person, get into every session I can. And, and I can tell you about next year, it's, it's already going to be great. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there was definitely a gut feeling and inner belief about that. Now that we've been on the motivational that's right exactly let's 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 do the u-turn into nerdland so when i just stepped into your apartment we were looking at bases because that's the first thing that happens before you take your jacket off absolutely <laughs> that's how absolutely. it's always going to be Step when, one. when we're 80 that shit's going to be the same number but, one but uh you showed me the bases that have, you've done the bulk of the work with mm -hmm. charlie on and it's a Black bass mods, five string, PJ with Aguilar pickups, right? Yep. And your, was it 72P bass? And the 72P, yeah. That, those are, the 72 and the Music Man I just mentioned were the yeah. only two electric basses I brought with me from New York. Yeah. It was my one five string and my one four string. Yeah. So I, you know, I tried to come prepared. And then, of course, my upright, which I've yeah. owned since day one for 20 years. Um, but yeah, the... All the Charlie recordings that I've done, everything um, that we work on with Charlie in the studio, like any of us, I always bring like five bases to the session. I think I imagine all the different possibilities of sonically what he could be looking for, mm -hmm. you know, where we could go modern, vintage, everything in between. Um, I always make sure to bring a P because I can't see myself showing up to a session without one. And then it'll be anything else. A J, a music man, a bass mods, whatever. But the, all the records end up on this P bass. Four string, classic, Motown, funk machine, whatever you want to call it. I mean, it's like that sound has been used by everybody. And it's so ready-made. When you plug in, there's not a whole lot an engineer needs to do to, to be ready to record. What I noticed noodling on that thing earlier today was uh, it's a maple neck. Uh, but it has a lot of warmth in spite of not being a rosewood. Absolutely. Yeah. This bass is weird like that. This maple neck P bass sounds darker live, plugged in. We haven't even plugged it in. We were just noodling on it acoustically. But yeah, it sounds darker than a lot of rosewood board P basses, modern or vintage. It's so weird. One time I was playing this gig at um, at the Blue... Uh, this, this, this bass had a gig at the Blue Whale with... My friend Rachel Eckroth and Tim Lafave was on the gig, playing a bunch of original music. And Ethan Farmer, who we love and spoke about earlier, mm -hmm. um, my dear friend, he was in the audience just hanging, just checking out um, the gig. And he was like, 
man, afterwards he said, was your tone all the way rolled off? Like the bass sounds so dark out here, like almost no highs. Like it, with your tone all the way, just that pot was just yeah. slammed shut. I was like, nah, it's wide open, man. It's dead strings on a maple neck yeah. on the, this particular bass. You know, they're all different and very inconsistent from back then. Um, it sounds so dark. Like I never usually rosewood on a on a P makes sense. Yeah. Uh, for a dark sound, I don't miss rosewood at all, uh, because this thing, this thing just speaks in a really warm, darker way, which is bizarre for maple. And I keep dead strings on it, flats yeah. or rounds. But so the bass mods five. Uh huh. I mentioned you. I had seen you use that on one of the morning show performances, yeah. and. You, I think you might have even said this here a moment ago, but it feels like it is pretty modern, even for a modern bass. Yeah, yeah. totally. It's yeah, the bass mods five is a. This is a, a crazy combination of things. First of all, it's a PJ, which mm -hmm. we both love. I know you play yeah, yeah. Sadowski. Um, I've been super into PJs. I bought it from my friend B Dub, who's an incredible uh, gospel bass player from uh, City of Refuge Church. But, um, yeah, this bass is such a weird combination of things. Like when I solo the P pickup alone, I can get, I can imitate a vintage old school P pretty well, you know, roll off some of the highs and get rid of some of the modern brightness. And so the versatility, then I go to the back pickup and it's like a barky Jocko nasally bridge tone. And, and when they're combined, the two pickups it sounds really modern. It super aggressive mids, always sits in the mix, really present. You can't get away with any mistakes because they're going to be heard. And um, yeah, it cuts right through. Super fat low B for a 34 inch scale. It's, mm -hmm. You know, uh, sometimes it's it's challenging to find. The low B is super strong on it, and yeah, and that it's got this high end spank to it that almost uh, a couple of my friends even kind of like referred to it as almost like a Smith bass, mm -hmm. which we know those are like, that was like the ultimate 80s gospel bass um, that everybody was playing. And the, the the bright high end would cut through with this little clickety clackety thing that was, oh, yeah. it's like a signature sound of theirs. Yeah. Um, so this bass has that, especially as you go up. But this, this actually happens to be Charlie's favorite bass. He's told me several times, right on stage or mid rehearsal, He'll walk right up and be like, that's the one right there. And he's like an audio genius. Mm -hmm. Just if we're just talking about sounds, you know, he is absolutely the kind of artist that's going to notice when the bass is too dark or it's a, a vintage type tone or it's an old P versus a modern. I mean, you change that. He's going to, he might not say anything, but, but if he likes it, he's going to actually point it out and let you know. So, so this has been the one. So, since we're speaking about that gig, I have not been to one of your shows yet. I've seen single songs to oh, TV, but I've not been to one of your shows yet. But my best friend and production buddy saw your recent tour stop in Nashville. Oh, cool! And I'm like, yeah, I've, I've that talked. That crazy to, show. I've talked to Dimitri already. Uh, we had already texted at that yeah, point made on, on Instagram, whatever. Mm -hmm. Thinking everything out of LA is half key bass, like the record, and half electric. And he's yeah. like, yo, Dimitri played like electric all night, even on the key bass stuff. And, and I was like, that's cool. So I want to hear more about how that decision was sort of made. If it was like, 
Charlie requested that in production rehearsal. So you're like, hey man, let's keep some of that on track. Let me play bass on. What was the thought process there? So that's a great question. Um, the irony is I do play key bass on the tour. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. Just not, a, just not like maybe as much as on the records, right? Not as much as on the records. Yeah. I play three on this, um, on this tour, uh, on the voice notes tour, I play key bass on three songs. Of the show all night so yeah not oh, that um, yeah, yeah. And probably 10 on electric yeah um, so it's definitely a natural bass heavy um, and ironically the key bass I can't believe he was at the Nashville show that one was a hilarious one because of, we had a bunch of technical difficulties he witnessed the most train wreck technical difficulty show of the whole tour the key bass actually ended up going into the ground it got slammed over and and got torn apart in the first song the 72 no 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 the key bass oh the key, key bass, bass. yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Sure. no no, no. 72 i don't even take that on yeah. the road uh that's that's too valuable to even take yeah. on the road i don't want anything to happen to that um i bring another p but no there's a kabuki that comes down and does the reveal and all that you know all that stuff yeah. and it was so windy in nashville that day that it actually Swept up the instrument. It started knocking over the bass mods. I grabbed this because I didn't want that to hit the ground. And um, it did grab the key bass and slammed it into the ground. I tried to catch it and then I was like, no, I got to play. Let me go right back to my part. And um, so the key bass miraculously worked for the rest of the show. But the, the, the power cable was like hanging out by the guts. Um, so that was a funny show uh, as far as that. But, um, but back, back to your question... Charlie produces stuff in just such a unique way that when you go to put the live show together, you have to be just very careful and very specific about how you're going to recreate some of those sounds. Um, specifically, we're talking about attention, I think. That was because, my next question. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we'll segue right into that. Um, so Charlie's sound on attention, I didn't play on that record. That is him programming a quasi semi-realistic semi-synth bass line which is a funky hard mm -hmm. bass driven um line but it's a trillion contact sound mm -hmm. that's where he got that sound and he programmed it so it kind of sounds like a p with a pick it sounds chunky and it was like it sounds part of my interruption go it's, ahead, it's yeah. chunky but it has like a maple neck p bass upper contingent so my question specifically is you said that's a trillion sound, but uh -huh. is it a composite sound? That's a good. Qu that's a yeah. question for Charlie. I wish yeah. I knew because I wasn't there when he was building the song. He's meticulous about that stuff. Mm -hmm. Knowing Charlie, it could be layered several sounds. Yeah, he absolutely has no problem stacking two, three bass sounds into one and making one crazy fat concoction of 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 a, a new bass sound. Um, but it's it's definitely got like a a sharp attack. I had to really study that sound, and um, it's got a really sharp attack, and it does have that bright high end of a maple P. Mm -hmm. um, but at the end of the day, it still sounds like synth bass too. Mm -hmm. You you can tell it's not a real bass when you really listen in. It's like intentionally uh, a synthy sounding thing. So when it came time to rehearse for the show, put together the show with the band and the MD, I was like, well, should we just download that sound? put it in a key bass and I'll just play the line like Charlie played the line on a controller, you know, with mm -hmm. that exact, just go into contact, go get that trillion sound and whatever else he did to it. 
And the MD was like, nah, man, let's not do that. That's not going to look cool. We want to see you up there playing that bass-driven tune on an electric bass. And I was like, oh, okay. So I'm going to have to imitate an, a synth sound imitating an electric bass. So it's kind of like twice removed on that one. So I went to my bass wizard, bass sound uh, friend, uh, Tim LaFave, mm -hmm. who I've known since way back in New York. And I was like, Tim, I got this crazy ass uh, record I got to play with Charlie. How do I, how do you think I'm going to, I should build this sound um, to, to kind of recreate this synthy thing that's already imitating an electric bass. I'm like two steps removed from the original thing. And I came over his house, we listened to the record and he helped, he tremendously helped me to dial in that sound. So he said, you're going to have to make it work with a pick. And I've been cool with a pick for years from playing guitar. So mm -hmm. I was familiar with that. And he's like, it's definitely a pick line. Um, it's definitely, a, you want a chunky sound. And then he put together an overdrive pedal and a compression pedal. Mm -hmm. And tried them in different orders. Compression first, overdrive later, or vice versa. Because there's no rhyme or reason. There's no rules to the game. Or if there are, they're made, meant to be broken. I if think, anybody ever tells you... Well, go ahead. Yeah, no, I think a lot of guitar players... I listen a lot to, to guitar podcasts, actually, even though I'm not a great guitar player. Big shout-out to Guitar Geeks podcast from Sweden and hey. Riff Raff podcast with Shane Terrio here in America. Yes, with that aside... Um, guitar players seem to really obsess over correct pedal sequencing. It's huge. I think it is. It's huge. But I think there's more of a rule book for them than for us bass players. Yeah. Because I really like to put pedals in orders they're not supposed to be in for some stuff. That's what I it's wanted to mention. That you were actually, instead of reading the rule book, you and your buddy Tim were, were like, oh, let's see what it actually does sonically. Swapping, swapping yeah. it around. Yeah, to me, the thing to do with that if we're into the pedals conversation for a second, don't even get the rule book. That way you won't even know what it's supposed to be. Who cares? Yeah. Screw it. Um, try different shit. And I and make your I would I would say this is what I do. Just make listen to what's coming out, what's happening, and have your ear tell you whether you like it and what what you should reverse and change up. So just try a combination whether you're supposed to or not and say Oh, okay, I don't like that. Well, then it doesn't work. Then it's not, that's not what you need to do. Reverse some things, flip some things around. Put the delay pedal at the beginning of the chain. Let's see what that does. Put it on, on max when you're really not supposed to. Let's see what that does. That's how you're going to create cool sounds and, and your own unique sort of sounds and come up with a non-traditional cool combination you might be on on some on some next shit with that you know what i mean so experiment but yeah tim tim helped me with um dialing in that sound so attention even though on on the record get back to that it's it's synth bass i play it live with a pick and um a compression and overdrive and uh yeah it's just a fun heavy funky rocker go up stage and rock out with charlie right in right up there with them by you know by the crowd up front type of type of song um and then as far as the rest of the music is concerned generally it, same rough approach but it's mostly um it ends up being on string bass and not synth other than like a few records that 
when you have that obvious synth bass sound on the recording, you got to give them that live. Do you guys play boy live? We do, and I play both electric and that's that man, song. You're honing in on that all song the, is my. That's the jam. favorite, right? It's just, but it's straight like Charlie. <coughs> he didn't even try to not be full out '80s on that one. So I, I love it that that song just owns its influences and it's completely beautiful. and not hiding it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he loves '90s R&B more than anything. Mm-hmm. Number one, uh, Jimmy Jam, Terry Lewis produced records. Uh, Teddy Riley, I mean those Babyface, Charlie, complete. I mean we all love those. Charlie adores those records. And then the next favorite thing is the 80s. Mm-hmm. And he's, yeah, yeah, like no shame in just going there, taking it to the 80s thing all the way. So on that one, I do play key bass because the record is very much a synth bass. And that's kind of a musician's favorite record. You don't know how many people of the cats that we hang mm-hmm. with and uh, just music heads that come up to me and like, man, I know there's, there's attention and all these other songs on the album. I love Boy. That song is like the best. It's just, it's so funky and it's definitely a musician's favorite. Um, play it at the end of the show and they kind of going crazy by then. But um, I play synth on it because the sound on it is very 80s synth. Mm-hmm. But then there's a breakdown and he takes that little ripper keyboard solo, which is also dope. Mm-hmm. Um, and he plays all that live. And then on the way out of it, there's a bunch of big choruses, you know, just kind of the drive or whatever, double choruses on the end of the song. By then, I'm grabbing my, uh, actually a four string mm-hmm. jazz bass or a P, and that, that's that's kind of a slap fest by then. Because yeah. we're just kind of going in. So that sound at that point, that's the kind of enhancing what's what's originally on the record, which is just the synth bass. But there's actually, we play two synth bass parts at the same time on that. Because Derek Cobbs, the MD, yeah. he plays key bass all over it too. So we're like, it's almost like battling key bass uh, parts. I kind of hold down the line and he's like just floating all around it, putting his magic on there. He's an amazing, amazing musician, amazing guy, amazing musical director that I've learned a ton from. He definitely makes my ears uh, grow every time I work with him and a, a, a great player great player uh programmer and md but um but yeah so we play synth bass on that mostly like i said by the end it's like a slap fest everybody's just going in um and then a lot of the other songs we play electric on because um we want that organic feel you want that natural um you know string sound plus if you're trying to rock out on stage you know there's nothing like we got wireless so there's nothing like running up and down stage with a a bass in your hands rather than be stuck at the synth bass station Mm -hmm. um so it just all depends on the song but it's the the song is king whatever song called the song calls for and the vision for it and of course we always run it by charlie and what he wants to hear and what he envisions for the live show that then that's what we play if i need to play synth bass then i got the moogs and the and the whatever the korg out, but uh, but yeah, it's definitely fun to just have like a four string and just run around and rock out, and 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 jump around. So it's you know it's a mixture of the two. Wow. 
since we're talking about that tour before we get away from it, mm -hmm. you mentioned using compressor and distortion for your attention sound. I assume those two pedals are on for other stuff too. Mm -hmm. What specifically pedal-wise are you are, is currently on that tour board? I have a picture somewhere. I think that board I ripped apart already once I got home off okay. the road. Yeah. Um, well, there's well, a delay pedal on there that I use. Again, it's just all about details. Um, there's a song, um, there's a couple of songs that, that Charlie actually put like a little delay trail on the bass sound, which is generally a no-no, um, you know, because it muddies things up and yeah. is, you would think it makes things unclear. He has this wizard way of making it work. So um, I think a song called Empty Cups um, and maybe one other one. There's a little delay, so I had a, a DD3 or DD7, a Boss delay mm -hmm. pedal, and uh, it's just got a couple of repeats, a little bit of feedback on low on um, on the delay pedal, and so that's on there. Um, I keep a Sadowski preamp that we talked about earlier. Yeah. I know you play Sadowski, so you you'll um, probably be a fan of that sound. Um, I keep that as a booster for my passive basses. Mm -hmm. So, especially anytime we're in a situation where we're not wireless, I need that to, to come up, I need the, the passive basses to come up to the level of the signal of the active bass, mm -hmm. so that I'm getting a uniform signal coming out the front of house mm -hmm. and to monitor world. So I'll use that as a booster, because um, when we're on wireless, you can just adjust the pack to compensate yeah. for that, yeah. you know? And then also when I want that, whether it's a Marcus Miller slap or just a, a clean, bright, scooped, say jazz bass tone, mm -hmm. um, I'll click that Sadowski on and just it just drives the shit out of the bass and highs and, yeah. and, and gives you that thing. It just makes that bass be able to compete. Yeah, it'll uh, wake a bass up is what I feel about it. Completely, yeah, because yeah, yeah. passive tones are awesome. We love them and recording wise, they're king. Mm -hmm. But live, you know, it's a whole different world. So it's like it, like you said, it wakes it up and brings the level up and, and really uh, it competes on that stage because there's a lot going on. We got a lot of live stuff on that stage. Yeah. I keep uh, uh, two 410s. You know, a lot of pop stages are silent now, you know, where you're just on ears and maybe subs. Yeah. We got a full live kit with just a couple baffles. So the drums are going crazy. Uh, guitar, uh, Jan has got a couple Marshall stacks. Props to Charlie, man. He's breaking all the rules as breaking far as that goes. All, this dude is breaking all the rules. So we have a... Two a, four tens, you said, right? Yeah, yeah, a big GK. Shout out to GK. They've been so nice to me. They've are you best. using the hybrid 550 or which amp are you using? Um, my thing with them has been the Fusion MB800. Okay, yeah. Which is a, a tiny little Class D yep. head. That's got 800 watts when you run it at four ohms, so mm -hmm. it absolutely runs the that stack easily. Yeah. And then it's got three 12 AX7s, I mm -hmm. think, yep. tubes in the pre so it's a tube amp too. So that's that sound we loved so much, and we worked hard on on the sound with the front of house guy yeah. in production and rehearsals. <clears throat> we tried all kinds of DIs. Mm -hmm. We tried the Neve. We messed around with a Miura that I have. And everything from a radial to it, even my Noble 2 Pre, which we all love Noble. Shout out to them too. And I ended up running with the DI out of the back of the GK. 
That's so that two, that two pre in the class D power amp, it was a direct DI to front of house. That was the sound we settled on. I'm not at all surprised for a live show that that beat the high end studio uh, DIs. Somehow it did. Because when I said hybrid 550, I meant the Fusion 550. They're, was, they're yeah. the same. They so use the same preamp. That is the same preamp as you have. In two yep. years, I think 16 and 17 on my tour, I used the same DIs you did out of that preamp. The Fusion it's magic, preamp. man. It's it magic. Is. We compared it. We recorded five different. Yeah. Uh, in the little front of house booth, you know, in rehearsals yeah. at yeah. center staging, recorded five different preamps, same bass line, same bass, everything the same, and went back and listened to them like on some hi-fi speakers and was like, that one, obviously. And everybody agreed that that was the sound and that was right out of the back of the amp. So not only was it driving the speakers in my live stage sound, mm -hmm. but it was also the exact sound going direct. And then I happened to one time be on the road when we recorded How Long with Charlie, which was just a random, uh, on a day off in Kansas, in the back of the, his tour bus, he set up a, a mock mock-up studio and he was working on this record how long and when I had no preamp to record through and no rig and we didn't want to just go dry right into the interface directly into his computer I used that same amp uh, the pre of it to record how long too so that's just a P P base going into that Fusion MB800 so that's yeah. been a recording rig a DI and a live amp I, I so shout it. out to GK for making that thing and uh, Forrest Galleon and, and Bob and everybody on the team, they've been so kind to me. Like, they've, uh, they're an amazing bunch of people and their product. I mean, that thing yeah. speaks for itself. I'm so glad you brought that up because I do think right now, and especially, you know, coming to LA from Nashville, in Nashville, a lot of my colleagues are full time studio guys, and the DI talk is, and it's always. It's a thing. It's a thing, and then I say, I run the DI out of the back of my head. For tour and, and some, they all roll their some, eyes. Right? Well, if it's not an eye roll, or it might at least be a side eye. Yeah, they don't trust you with that yeah. one. You're like, what? But there's a you don't. Here's my thing with live playing, especially through big PA's and big venues, which you're playing a lot of nowadays. The super rich sub lows, nobody wants them. Your front of house, house guy don't want them at all. He's got all but, the subs in the world. He can yeah. he can create yeah. the sub lows in two seconds. But character in the upper mids, not distortion necessarily, but character. The character. That's, that's gold. And as it turns out, a lot of DIs that aren't quote unquote, the most hi-fi thing, sometimes uh, because the lack of some of the sub lows have a more pronounced uh, high mids, more personality, I should say. And, and I'm gonna hop on your bandwagon with praising that specific preamp with the 12X7s in it, because it's got enough rock and roll while still sounding modern. Is yep. how I've always felt about it. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, to piggyback off of that, it took me years to realize that the character of all these basses, whether you play Sadowski or Fender <laughs> or bass mods or Pensa, anything, the real character, what makes a bass sound different than another bass, mm -hmm. is the mids. Mm -hmm. The lower mids and especially the upper mids. Mm -hmm. It's like sub lows are just lows. They're actually very similar on every bass. You, it's just it's just mud basically. You're down there. You're you know it's just producing low end. That's just beef and and it gets lost in any eighteen inch subwoofer. It's just mud. Highs they are a little bit more characteristics toward like we said like 
Smith bases have their thing. You know, Fender has their transparency on top. But nothing makes... A lot of those highs disappear in the mix as soon as you start playing live. Mm-hmm. It's like you said, the live thing is very different. The cymbals and all the other instruments that occupy that high frequency, mm-hmm. you they kind of suppress... You're not like cutting through at, you know, 6K all day long on, on bass. Hopefully not, because that's going to sound crazy. Um, so unless you're slapping, mm-hmm. the highs get tucked in the mix. And the presence and the character of your bass, it all lives in the midst. I'm a firm believer. If I want my bass to be heard, to have presence, to stick out in the mix, and also to, to give it its own unique character, whatever it might be, I make sure that I boost the mids or or that they're already present. Maybe I don't have to boost them. Mm-hmm. Um, and GK having a lower mids and an upper mids uh, knob always on all their amps from the old RB 400s and 800s to the modern ones, it really helps to bring out certain characteristics of whatever your bass is bringing to the table. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, it's all about the mids. To me, the like the lows, the front highs. The guy's gonna add them if you don't have enough. Yeah, and he's gonna have to cut them if you got too much. But he can't. He can't. He can't. He can't create. What's high not notes. there? Yep. Yeah. What you're not, if you're not giving him yeah. that? Yeah. He can't create it. You can always cut, but you can't always, um, you know, bring out if it's not there. That's why I think as bass players, and I did made this mistake for years. Um, we give the front of house and di. A little too much low end. We think, oh, we're a bass. I gotta give them more beef. Here's more bass. Yeah. Bass, yeah. I'm gonna boost it on my preamp and boost it on the head and God knows where else. Maybe a subwoofer. It's like, bro, do you realize that all that's going to down that line is just a bunch of woof? Mm-hmm. You just wiped out the actual characteristics of a bass. It's like being in a club. You ever walk in a club and you don't even know what note that is? It's mm-hmm. just rumble. It's mm-hmm. just like the trunk of a car. Mm-hmm. It's just sub lows. That's not. You can't tell if that's a P, or if that's a J, or what even pitch that is. It's yeah. just. It's just woof. You know what I mean? So, yeah. I had to dial back my lows. Like, well, I'm giving them a little too much. I mean, boost the mids, you know, and give them something to work with. Uh, and if it's too much, they can always cut it down. Yeah. You know. But finger style for sure, in through larger PA's. Overcompensating with the mids is a good thing. While the mids you, is where the bass lives. If you lives. play with a pick or if you slap, you might not want to, you know, yeah. that's kind of a thing. But yeah, finger style. I've seen so many arena tours where I've seen the guy change bass between songs. And Do you I've, notice the And I've surely been that guy, yeah. you know, where I'm like, oh, it's fretless, so here's my big active and here's my and vintage. And no one can tell that no it's different. And I'm not saying lower your bar or comp. You know, but uh, you know, no, no, that's an EQing issue. Unless, an EQing unless issue. you have worked with your front of house guy and you know, yeah, you know that he's gonna represent that, just make sure you have a solid bass tone all night, kind of a thing. Yeah, you don't, you don't need to switch 7,000 different bases if overall you're gonna be sending tons of just bottom, yeah, out of all those bases. Because you're gonna, yes, yeah, like you said, you see the guy pick up a whole different bass and he maybe even grabs a pick. Yeah. And nothing changes. You're like, dude, well, who are you doing that for? Yeah. I understand the diligence in trying to nail the, the sound of the record. The record is king. We're always chasing that sound. But out here in the house, nothing changed. You might as well just, you know, you don't need up that much gear with you on tour. Bring less. 
But the, the thing with, with Charlie's camp, again, I'm super lucky. The front of house guy, Mike Schaefer, mm -hmm. um, amazing dude, great, great, great mixes, but he's really that guy you can work with. Mm -hmm. And you can trust him on representing that sound out in the house. So what I do a lot of times with Mike is after the show, no matter how great we had of a time on stage and the energy might have been crazy, Charlie's happy the band nailed their parts and, and had a blast. I'll go to the front of house guy and I, I go, how was your show? Because mm -hmm. literally your show is different than my show. Absolutely. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's too, like people don't realize unless they've been doing this, that it's two different worlds. The sound in your in-ear monitors and the energy on stage and the energy from the crowd might be incredible. And then in a front of house, they might have been uh, troubleshooting and tweaking the whole time and just whether they're dialing out feedback or, or just the mix just not sitting right or certain frequencies sticking up. So I always go to him after almost every show and I go, how was your show? I want to know what, what did the show sound like from your perspective? And he, he doesn't have in-ears in, you know, he's just using his ears to feel the room and the crowd. He'll be like, it was actually a great one. I'll be like, oh, okay, yeah. cool, that's a nice surprise. I'm glad to hear that. Or he's like, it's a rough one. And then I want to know why. Because at the end of the day, it's not just me playing bass. It's like he's the bass player, too. He has the final say for everybody in the mix. That's that, he's the hidden member of the band. Because we could be playing no matter how great or whatever you want to yeah. call it, the shit coming off stage, he can make all that sound like feedback. Yeah. Yeah. He can make it sound like mute. He can make it sound too loud. He can make it sound puny. So he has the final say. So I want, you want to be in partnership with your front of house guy. I mean, have a drink with him, hang out, have beers, whatever it is, you know, build a relationship because that dude to me is, and he has the final say. So I'm like, how was your show? And he'd be like, ah, you know, today the bass sounds a little thin. I'm like, is there something, is it something on my end? Like, how do we work? Is it, is it just because you didn't have too many subs or am I sending you a weird signal or you're getting less than, you know what I mean? Let's fix this work on it so that by the next show you say I had a big fat juicy bass sound it was dope all night just like we rehearsed it you know what I mean yeah it's, you're not in this by yourself yeah it's like you said they're like a hidden member of the band but they're also the guy that plays all the instruments he plays all the instruments and I've had I've been on a few tours where the artist Usually if I was an MD and I would actually sort of have the, the balls to say it, but they paid me fair and they let me hire my favorite guys, yeah. right? So I know we got this thing and then I see them going through front of house guys, not paying them enough. And I'm like, you wasted all your money on me and these guys. Yeah. You could have hired guys straight out of a music college who are, you know, off, you know, they don't have a lot of experience, but they... They got tried. some proficiency. Yeah, they got some proficiency, yeah. and you would be fine. But you are throwing away your money because you're saving, trying to save money with a guy that actually plays all the instruments. You yeah. know what I'm saying? On the front end, you're investing yeah. in the best guys. Yeah. Getting yourself and your team. Uh, yeah. And on the back end, yeah. which has the final say, yeah. which is the show the audience actually is hearing, not the artist yeah. and not the sidemen, yeah. you're cutting corners and you're losing quality like... Man, what do you think that's gonna do in the long run? Yeah. If front of house sounds like shit, 
I think, I think the valuable lesson from what you were saying is talking to your front house guy and buying him a beer and all that because I Have do feel, and especially that, more modern bass tones and five string basses, and we are from the lowest lows to sometimes the five, six K modern gospel slap tones. So the more you know about pro audio, because you're playing one of the few instruments that actually, especially in a smaller ensemble where you're only maybe three or four guys or five, where you might be in a lot of frequencies. Yeah. So don't talk to them about just your sound, talk to them about what parts of your sound. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the greatest advice. One of the greatest pieces of advice on this podcast so far is, is sit down with your front of house guy and hang. Because, totally. because yeah, that guy, that guy is, is at least half of your sound. Yeah. It's ju just like when we're picking out basses, I always remind people that's only 50% of your sound. Yeah. Because your bass, the other half of your tone comes from your amp. Like we play the, the the amp just as much as we play the the bass because if you plug in your favorite Sadowski through an amp that's trash, I mean some of the bass might still shine through. Yeah. But a lot of it is going to sound like trash. Yeah. So it's the combination of the two. Same thing with with the the teamwork between the bass player and the front of house guy or the drummer and the front of house guy. It's between the two of you is where the the full sound is actually completed. jumping way into the future obviously the next few years with a successful act and you guys got a good team so hopefully there'll be a lot of that to come and he'll Charlie's he, working on a new, new record yeah and, and he'll already. keep writing stuff that challenges you and that yeah. that you can't sleep through and, and you'll be happy there but 10 years down the road what would be an ultimate scenario for you uh, in your own personal sort of career well, the, the thing that I do at the same time that we haven't talked about that I always do while doing a pop gig or a tour is always keep an original band. Um, I don't know if it's the New Yorker in me or the whatever, even the Boston guys I grew up around in, there was always a stress on original music. Mm -hmm. So there's a side of me that always makes sure to write or at least create or play some kind of original music, whether it's improvised music, jazz or fusion, something on the spot, or um, working with a singer, MDing a band, creating a sound and putting together something original. So for me, that's going to be just as much a part of my future as it is currently now. Um, I have a band that I think you've come out and uh, hung out to see, Improv Trio. And um, while I'm off the road right now and home, we're actually putting out a record. We just finished up and it's uploaded to TuneCore, ready to be. Oh man, you're right uh, about to. Yeah, and we're about to drop an album. Promote that all you want because I feel because it's, a, it's such a small uh, setup, it's super bass centric. And, yeah. And, and uh, the other two guys are very prominent players on the LA scene. Killing too. players. So, Killing players. Uh, that piano player, I, I played with that at Xavier. 77. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's yeah, been yeah. subbing for Toto. And if you're from my generation, if you sub for Toto, you can, you know, you can, you can go to the woods the rest of your life and have something, you know, yeah. something that's the pinnacle of a, of a keyboard player. He's incredible. His name yeah. is Xavier. A uh, full name is uh, Dominique Xavier Taplin. 
he's like, this kid is 25. I would say the most in-demand keyboard player in LA. Mm -hmm. Everybody's calling him, he's so busy. He's a super nice cat and as you heard, incredibly talented. He plays the keyboard almost like a percussion slash guitar instrument. Mm -hmm. Super rhythmic and just very percussive. Um, he's amazing, he's from Oklahoma City. So yeah, he's doing Toto. I don't, I guess he is subbing, but he's, he's in there. They've taken him in like family. Yeah. Um, he's killing on that gig. He was with Prince in his early 20s, mm -hmm. uh, at the end of Prince's life uh, and beginning of his career. Um, he also plays in Sput's Ghost Note Band, which is a crazy funk band with Mono Neon on bass and um, all these killers uh, with Sput on drums. And I think Xavier manages to do Snow Allegra's gig, which is a pop gig, and Daily. So that guy just stays out on the road. We we can only we only play the trio gigs when all three of us are in town. We don't sub this thing out. There's no replacements. Nothing else works but the chemistry between the three of us. So we all have to be in town, home, and off the road to do a show. Um, but we're going to drop the record while uh, some of us are out anyways. So he's amazing. Donald Barrett is incredible. He's kind of the OG of the band, uh, the drummer. Super Killing just recently just got the gig with Lady Gaga Um on the jazz side of her show. So she's doing that residency in Vegas mm -hmm. where she does all her big pop hits mm -hmm. with her regular band. And then she has this big 40 piece jazz orchestra and they're doing all that stuff that she got into with Tony Bennett and American Songbook and jazz and standards. And Donald's now the drummer on that. He's smacking the shit out of that gig. He's killing on it. So um, when the three of us are off the road, that's, our ongoing passion project we've had a residency at hotel cafe for two years now come see us there we post it on our social media because it's not so regular it's only when we're in town and to make sure that people can can uh, take you up on that what is the exact handle um the handle for the band is at improv trio so improv like improvising mm -hmm. trio all one word at improv trio we always post on there uh, hit us up, follow us there. I always share it on my page and do a little promoting, whether it's videos or flyers. My Instagram, if you want to follow me, is at Tall Bassist. So just like a self-description of myself, Tall Bassist, uh, Tall Bass Player, whatever. Because uh, my name is so weird and difficult to spell for people, I was just like, let me make up something easy that's... It's pretty straightforward for a Russian name. <laughs> <laughs> it can get worse. Yeah. But uh, Tall Bases happened to be not used on IG. It was available. Yeah. And, and that sort of became my hashtag. If you want to look up that hashtag, Tall Bases, that's always... My stuff is going to come up. It became my email and my handles and whatever. And, but yeah, at Improv Trio is the band's name. Um, so... Yeah, so we've got a record coming up. Oh, yeah. go ahead. And I was, I was thinking, as we were sitting there talking about it, with you three all being sort of notable players, and it being, you know, improv jazz stuff, I can see you having a, a, a career playing a lot of, a lot of festivals, especially mm -hmm. Europe and, and Asia. I would, I would think you guys would keep, if that record takes off just a little, you guys can play Blue, Blue Note all night long in Tokyo and Absolutely. that type of we've, stuff. We've got our eye on all that stuff. Yeah. We've got our eye on, um, on playing on films or scores mm -hmm. or being the core of a band 
where they can add other instrumentation and feature singers and we could still be the rhythm section mm -hmm. um, jazz festivals and uh, yeah we came together that way just from being your fr here's a full circle story Phil Lasseter right when I me and Phil moved here to LA um, in the first year he called us up he called me up and he said my friend Shante Ken uh, she's a singer from down south she's incredible incredible artist she was on like some snarky puppy stuff and her own stuff she needs a pickup rhythm section she's going to be doing a show at the blue whale i recommended you and a couple of my buddies just go you know learn the music go do this thing just show up and play no rehearsal i show up it's this guy donald on drums mm -hmm. xavier on keys and shantae and we had a blast so much of a blast that night with just the chemistry and the energy felt right at the end of the gig, we all hugged and said, thank you, no, it was great to play. And we were looking forward to playing with Shantae again, but we said to each other as a rhythm section, this can't be the end. We had never played together as a trio. I'm like, we have to keep this thing going because the chemistry just felt amazing and just right away came together. So that's when we started the band because we didn't want to let that go. Um, and it's uh, it's funny, man. You kind of you you got a great way of hinting at um, at segues because you just said jazz festivals, and I'm actually going to do one at the end of this month uh, with Harvey Mason. I just got a call um, from a friend of mine uh, to go to Java Jazz Fest. So that's definitely uh, in Jakarta. Mm -hmm. It's definitely a part of my reality. You know, having the the jazz uh, background and playing straight ahead and upright for years in New York and just even this group is kind of a fusion group we get into some moments where we stretch out harmonically so that's definitely always going to be a part of who I am and um, yeah playing jazz festivals is it, it's, it's just an ongoing favorite thing I'll be going uh, with Harvey and he's got a killing band too um, at the very end of this month actually as the record drops with Improv Trio I'll be flying to Jakarta to to do Java Jazz um, in Indonesia, and we're doing a night of a tribute to Aretha Franklin music. Mm -hmm. So it's a bunch of uh, Chuck Rainey lines and just Tom Cogbill and all the great bass players that I gotta you know study up on, um, whom I love. And then another night of fusion where we're playing like 4AM and Jocko stuff and uh, you know the stuff that Harvey played on with Headhunters with Herbie. So it'll be two nights. But yeah, that, that Jazz Fest thing is it's forever a dream of mine, man, to, to keep doing. As I just feel like I can do that and the pop thing and 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 I don't one doesn't rule out the other for me. I just I feel like I can live in both worlds. Just one more specific uh, information about the record, the improv trio record. So that comes out February twenty eighth. It'll be available on all platforms. Download, streaming, all that stuff uh, from iTunes, Spotify, all your favorites. It's going to be called Improv Trio Live at Hotel Cafe Volume 1, mm. which implies we actually already have Volume 2 in the can recorded. We have Volume 3 already recorded, and we're working on uh, the ideas for a studio album, which will be... Oh, so um, these are live records. Yeah, these are live records. No recording cost and everything. Yeah, absolutely. It's some of the stuff you might have heard. You yeah. might have been yeah. you might have been there at the show. We just yeah. edited and mixed it. And then 
we have uh, we're definitely scheming on doing like because we thrive off that live energy with the audience there. Yeah. So we're gonna go in the studio and make a live record, but in studio, kind of in that control environment. So we still have the energy of the audience. You're gonna invite some buddies and and, and have some man. beers. You've got to come, man. Yeah, You've yeah. Gotta come up. That'd be smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we get some of that. It'll still be improvised in the moment. We don't rehearse. We don't talk about anything other than how was your week, man? And we'll just go up there and play. And it's always our chemistry just will come out in the music. But there'll be a little live audience. So, yeah, a bunch of projects with the Improv Trio. But the first one, debut album, um, February 28th. Pick that up. Check it out. And then we're going to press some vinyl, too. For the for the nerdy geeky collectors or for whomever, just uh, there'll be a few copies, hard copies of vinyl with some artwork on them. Just you know, we grew up on that stuff. I gotta yeah. have some vinyl. Yeah, yeah. It's it's. Uh, I grew up on that stuff too. And it's uh, whenever something you play on comes out on vinyl, you just feel like I don't care how many of these sells. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't. It's yeah. not about yeah. that. We yeah. just gotta have it. Yeah. Just gotta have it for the person that knows the enthusiast that gets it will get it for everybody else it's cool if they don't get it um they can just stream it they'll hear it somewhere you know what i mean this leads me to one more thing Absolutely. since uh charlie's in the studio i yep. mean you guys toured until pretty recently but Somebody with his level of popularity, I sure, I'm sure both him and management are wanting to keep a momentum as far as him being out and on people's. When do you right think? On. When do you think you guys will start sort of touring again, big scale? Late 2019, <sighs> or yeah, that's the hope. That's yeah. the hope for the next big tour. Um, yeah. He, Charlie, is a is a workhorse. He's a one of a kind. So he probably has a ton of tunes recorded already. I mean, he's recording them while we're on the road. Mm-hmm. All the tracking um, I've ever done with him has been while traveling, which means he's constantly producing and creating music um, on the run, in the hotel room, in the you know waiting in the lobby, in his dressing room, right up till the time that he goes out on stage. And after he gets off stage, he keeps creating. So he's probably got enough for a record already. All right. But he's probably gonna just make a quick left turn and make a whole other record with a whole other sound. Knowing him, he could just, you know, that's how the great records are made, you know. Mm-hmm. Michael Michael Jackson used to make, have 30 tracks or whatever to pick from and get whittled down to 10, 10 uh, tunes that would make the actual album, the rest would get cut. So, um, he probably has a lot in the can already, but I think he's working on a brand new sound, he says. This next thing is going to be 100% him, as if the last record wasn't already. But he's just getting deeper and deeper into making honest music the way he feels it and the way he hears it without being told by anybody, record companies, A&R, or anybody else, how or what works and what's popular right now. So he's working on that. We do have a couple hidden spot dates where I can't I can't really reveal, yeah, sure. talk too much. But they are prior to the tour. Mm-hmm. So and you should see us somewhere out there, um, you know, on a, on a few. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. There's there's a couple of little mysterious dates sprinkled throughout the year. The last one we did was um, New Year's, uh, Dick Clark's um, yeah. 
that was the last show with him. Uh, so it's basically January 1st, the 31st of December. So maybe, I'm hoping maybe six months off while the record gets finished, released. Um, and then the second half of the year, it would be dope to start playing this stuff out in front of people again. Um, and on that note, I got to let people know about the And the Writer Is podcast, which is a lot of the big pop writers in LA revealing their secrets. But Charlie's episode of that oh, yeah, 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 is yeah, yeah. really, it, it is a little bit like your episode we just recorded here about this, because he talks about when he was struggling and when he wanted right. a publishing deal and like got down in Manhattan and like camped out in front of the office and Absolutely. the kind of stuff that you only do if you're insane, have big balls and know that there's no plan B. There's and, no plan B. We and, do fallback plans. Yeah. So I, I really liked his episode, a lot of that podcast. It's so great. If, you, if you're not hip to Charlie, you've heard all this talk about him because it's Demetrius' main gig, make sure you check out Charlie Puth on And The Writer Is podcast because that is... Uh, yeah, you, the, the hint of genius and the sense of humor is really great on that episode. So. Absolutely. Yeah. There's a few, I'm going to add, there's a few YouTubes out there where you can look up Charlie, not just playing, but talking about the making of, there's one on the making of attention. I've seen it, it's brilliant. It's yeah. cool, right? Yeah, yeah. To have him break down the sounds and the thought process and the car noises in the background that he mixes in and, and how verse two is different than verse one. Yeah. And then there's one on making of how long, mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm actually in there for a quick minute. It's a little animated story where he tells a story and then he, he tells how I come into the, you know, his vision for the bass line and the bass sound. He was like, I need this chunky P bass thing, man. I need like a chunky bass sound, bring a bass in. And then they have like a little animation of me. They got me with the beard and the hat. Like <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know it was out until my sister hit me. And she was like, man, you're in this little story. I think it was in uh, some, some big magazine or something like that. Or some online thing. Um, billboard. It was like Billboard Online. So there's, but, but the, the point is, is not to brag, but to check out Charlie and his thought process and his creative work. I mean, I love working with him. And uh, he's just such a talented player, musician, uh, producer, engineer. He engineers all his own stuff. Um, just a one of a kind. We we all love anybody that plays in his band knows. Like there's just nobody we'd rather work with, man. He's he's one of the absolute best in there. So yeah, it's cool to check out some of those YouTube. The writer is and the making of attention and some of that stuff that's out there. Because he's man. transparent. He like. He doesn't hide a lot of stuff. Well, I think, you know, him being of a certain generation is showing your creative process and letting people in before the end result, which sometimes guys like me or generations further back, there's an insecurity like, well, I got to hide these the industry secrets or whatever. Yeah, well, well, anyone that plays music on YouTube or on Instagram, anyone that plays a basic blazing 60 second track from their bedroom. Well, you, somebody said this on a guitar podcast the other day, and I think everyone needs to hear it. We don't hear the eight hours that day in that same living room where they went, fuck. Right, right, how no, many no, takes? No, 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 I was rushing, I'll be right there, I'm going to again. But we only see the 60 second clip we you get. You see the result. And you, a lot of people are talented that were 60 second is always that amazing, but there's always work behind it. 
and only truly brave artists will let show you the process. Oh yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of takes yeah. from most of us on most of these things, from little bedroom clips to yeah. to the the records vocal takes. Charlie does a thousand vocal takes, man. Yeah, just bajillions off of one mic from different angles, just over and over again, yeah. just to dial in exactly what he's hearing. Um, but yeah, it's there's so many failures, and all you see is the success. You see the end result. Um, but yeah, I, I feel like everybody of any talent level stumbles a thousand times and, and stands up a thousand and one. That's well, why they succeed. Truly great musicians, and this is also discussed in other, but truly great musicians practice what they don't know. And when you practice what you don't know, you're you going to sound like shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you, if you sound good in your practice sessions, yeah. you're practicing the, the wrong thing. Uh, I was lucky enough early, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, there was a jazz fusion guitar player in my little hometown in Sweden. He was all about, you know, the New York, Mike Stern, Schofield, those guys. Yeah. But in spite of that, he was also all about the rhythm guitar tracks on James Brown songs. So, which is, which so he said, amazing. as guitar players, even as professional guitar players, 80%, 90% of the time, we play rhythm guitar. Why do we spend 90% of our practice time playing leads? That doesn't make sense. And that just, even though I'm a bass player, that just like, it, it changed my life. You've got to groove at least 50% of your practice time. Yeah. Otherwise, and, what's it going to sound like when you get out yeah. in front of people? Yeah, and then the second piece of advice he said was, you know, practice stuff you don't know. And, and, and I've gotten lost. There's been weeks in my life where I pick up the bass and I play shit that I think I sound great at. Because, but then, you know, after a few weeks of that, your, your spirit just starts knocking on your shoulder going like, buddy, get over yourself. Get into some other stuff. Right. Exactly. You know? Yep. There's that little voice. That little voice. I always hear it, too. I always hear it, too. So, uh, many of you who's listened to more of these podcasts know I've been in loud cafes. I've been sitting with dudes with two or three bass amps humming in the background <laughs> and so this podcast except for the fridge and the neighbor running their water a few times exactly. it's been fairly quiet so uh big thanks to dimitri for inviting us to his home today absolutely made a world of difference so thanks bro. here anytime man. all right man anytime we'll do cheers cheers i hope everyone enjoyed my chat with dimitri i sure enjoyed hanging out with him the cat has a lot of knowledge Please tell all your friends to give me a review to recommend the podcast or hit us up on any of the social medias. I really appreciate all of that. Until next time, which will be only a week from now, keep it funky, keep it low, and I'll see you right back here on the Lowdown Society podcast.